thank you for joining us for another episode of FYI, the Public Library's podcast. I'm Brendan Dowling with the Public Library Association. Today, our guest is Eric L. Motley, Executive Vice President of the Aspen Institute. Eric has recently published his memoir of growing up in rural Alabama, Madison Park, A Place of Hope. He's here today to talk about how this close-knit community served as the bedrock for all of his later successes, including working as a special assistant to President George W. Bush. Welcome, Eric. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. I was wondering if you could begin by describing your hometown of Madison Park, Alabama. Madison Park was not always Madison Park. Madison Park became Madison Park in 1880, and it was right after the Civil War, a group of slaves having been recently emancipated who had saved some resources decided to pull those resources together, and they followed this pioneering leader of the group by the name of Eli Madison, who was a slave who could read and write. And Eli wanted to really make America work and to really try to pursue his own dreams and aspirations. And so he and 14 other slaves set out in Alabama, and they acquired a small plantation. And they made that plantation profitable enough with the cotton gin and crops and livestock. They secured enough resources that they then could buy a larger plantation. And they bought a little over 1,200 acres, and they settled there. And they built a church, and they built a school. They felt that liberation, both spiritually and intellectually, was very important. And they decided they would create a a community for other freed slaves. And so that was the beginning of Madison Park in 1880. And those organizers decided that in tribute to the leadership of Eli, they would call the place after him, Madison Park. That's where I grew up. That's where my grandfather's grandfather, who was a part of that large group of people who settled there, started his life. And all these generations later, the descendants still live in this place called Madison Park, this place of hope in Montgomery, Alabama. You were raised by your grandparents, George and Mossy Motley. Can you tell us about them? George Washington Motley was his full name, was the grandson of John Motley, who was one of those early pioneers that set up this community. George Washington Motley married Mamie Motley, who was known as Mossy. They had no kids of their own. They lived on the very piece of land that his grandfather acquired in 1880. A neighbor who had 14 kids and the neighbor's wife, who was a very good friend of theirs, discovered that she was dying of cancer and only had a little time left to live. Those neighbors, the Perrys, were very sympathetic to the Motleys not being able to have kids of their own, but also realized that they had one child in particular that they thought deserved an opportunity to grow in an environment that would be conducive to helping her to realize her potential. I don't know why or how they chose one child out of 14, but they chose their little girl, Barbara Ann, who was nine years old, and they asked the Motleys if they would adopt this one child, Barbara. With no hesitation or vexation, decided that they would fulfill this friend's dying wish, and they adopted this little girl, Barbara Ann. And they gave her all the promise that parents hope to give to a child. And that little girl grew into a woman who, at age 19, had a relationship and gave birth to an unformed bundle of possibility, which was me, Eric Motley. Those parents who had adopted her then decided that they would adopt me, and they would try their hand all over again at rearing a child, and they decided that they wanted to do everything they could to give this child 
the opportunity that they sought in uh, life. They had three great desires, that I would realize that I was created by some larger force. They were people of faith. They wanted me to realize that I was created by God and that I had a right to be here and that life would unfold just as it should. They had the desire for me to realize that I was a part of something much larger than myself, that I was a part of a community. They believed in the promise of community. They believed in the strength of community. They wanted me to realize that I was a part of Madison Park, but a larger community that extended beyond Madison Park. And their last but important desire was that I would have the opportunity of enlightenment, that I could be afforded through education. No one in my family had gone to college, and so it was their desire to see that this little child could develop the intellect and the competencies and the appetite to get an education. They realized, given their own limited opportunities, that this this gift could be transformative for my life and could take me to places that they would only be able to dream of. You talk in the book about how you didn't grow up, but instead you were raised. The use of the term raised implies that something from seed is cultivated and nurtured that it bears fruit. I was raised by my grandparents. I was raised by the people in the community, the retired teachers who tutored me, the neighbors who realized that I had some intellectual capacity and curiosity who invested a lot of their energies in driving me back and forth to the library when my grandmother was cleaning house and my grandfather was building houses. He was a carpenter. Everyone in this small town knew what raising meant. It meant nurturing and cultivating a seed and helping that seed to realize its own potential. And therein lies the growth. The book is full of examples of the community coming together to look out for different members in need. And one of the most memorable instances is when you were switched from the rabbit reading group down to the turtles. I was a part of the real second wave of students that were being bused from the African-American communities in Montgomery into the city to integrate the schools. And I was doing fairly well. I was in the reading group, the Rabbits, and the Rabbits were the accelerated readers, and the Turtles were the slow readers. The teacher informed my grandmother by writing a note to her that I was being demoted to the Turtles because I seemed to be having some real hard challenges with my reading, and she was devastated. My grandmother was not a discriminating type of person, but she knew the difference between rabbits and turtles. She phoned the one person in our community that she had enormous confidence in being able to help me find my way back. And so she phoned this woman named Emma Bell, who was a very muscular lady, both in faith and physique, and we affectionately called her Aunt Shine because everywhere she went, light followed. She was a very stern woman, and she had been retired already some 20 years as a teacher. Aunt Shine was invited over to the house, and my grandmother and Aunt Shine, looking at the note, she analyzed the situation, and she realized that some serious intervention was needed. You were meant to be a rabbit. You've been demoted to a turtle status, but we're going to restore you back to rabbit status, and it's going to require a lot of work, but I'm going to be committed to helping you with that restoration. She enlisted a group of retired teachers, all having been retired some 20-plus years. Her two sisters, Carrie Madison Say, Frankie Lee Madison Winston, and her sister-in-law, Prince Ella Madison, all grandchildren of Eli Madison, the founder of Madison Park. For two years, every day, these four women rotated and came to the Motley House and stayed for two hours every afternoon tutoring me and helping me 
to academically reclaim my right as a rabbit again. They started every session with my reciting the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. But it was imperative that I start every session reclaiming my own understanding of the importance of my identity as an American in this small African-American community. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were my birthrights, and that I should be familiar with those ideas in as much as I'm familiar with any other ideas. I guess it goes without showing that in no time I was restored back to rabbit status. One of the more interesting aspects of that story was that Aunt Shine one Sunday asked a minister if she could actually address the congregation, and she stood up in church uh, like a public service announcement, and she announced to all the parishioners that little Eric Motley had been demoted in his reading group, and that if Eric Motley was being slowed down, certainly other kids in the community were probably having challenges as well, and that they were there to assist. And she invited all the parishioners to join her in building me a library. She said, I'll be at the Motley's house this afternoon, and if any of you have any interest and donating any reading matter that you have at your house. I would love for you to drop it by his grandparents' house so that we could start him a little library. At least 20 people dropped by, and they brought what they had. And one was a 1972 almanac. Someone brought by a Life magazine from 1965. And someone brought by a wonderful volume of English verse, minus its table of contents or its index, but the pages richly sewn with the verse of Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth and Lee Hunt and Shakespeare. And so some of my earliest readings were some of the great English poets. Didn't this group of retired teachers, they continued like an informal tutoring session after you were gone? They created in the back of the church, because the church was the only kind of real meeting place, the only physical facility that could accommodate large groups of people. In the back of the church, they organized the Madison Park tutorial, and they invited all the kids in the community to come at least three days a week to these tutorial sessions. I, along with all of my friends, would show up, and they had mobilized maybe 15 different volunteers, and they all became tutors. And in many ways, it was almost like a Harlem Renaissance in this small community, and which underscores this interrelatedness between the church and the school, that we were not only concerned about your soul, but we were also concerned about your mind, and that the mind and the soul in many ways are interconnected and a part of this one body of your developing and this one body that you're nurturing and cultivating. And so the Madison Park School was founded out of the house of Eli Madison, and eventually in the 30s, it was one of the first African-American communities in Alabama that received a Julius Rosenwald grant. He was so concerned about African-Americans in the South post the Civil War that he started to work with Booger T. Washington to develop schools all across the South to provide some basic education to African-American slaves. From Eli Madison's house to the Julius Rosenwald School, where my mother attended, to my going off to integrate schools in the city, in the essence of this community, that education was so important, that education was the key to one's mobility. In reading the book, you get the sense of community really was a two-way street. You had a lot of interactions and responsibilities for older members of Madison Park. Can you talk a little bit about that? As I grew older, I realized that many of the people who had meant so much to me, these former retired teachers who got no compensation whatsoever, 
at least financially, perhaps spiritually and emotionally, they found great satisfaction in being helped able to help kids realize their own potential. Of course, I looked around me, and all of these people who had meant so much to me were also getting older, unable to really do many of the things that they had so enjoyed doing. And my grandparents always felt that it was important to constantly give back and to help your neighbor. And I had been a recipient of that type of benevolence. And so it was expected of me to also uh, exercise such benevolence. And it was never a contrived type of thing. It was so instilled in, I think, our members of community that it was as natural as breathing. It was just something you did without forethought. And so I had a volunteer regimen, and every day I would visit these retired teachers, and I would read to them. I would help them take in their laundry. Aunt Princella Madison, who only died last year at 104, the last survivor of those four teachers who came by my house to tutor me, she raised chickens, and so I would join her in collecting the eggs from the farm. I would help another neighbor with her shrubbery and to run errands. And so the chores that they were no longer able to tend to became my chores, or maybe I should say our chores. The interactions that you have with the different people are such vivid parts of, of the memoir and so much fun to read. You eventually worked in the White House, and you served as the special assistant to President George Bush for presidential personnel. Can you explain what your duties were in that position? I worked in the Office of Presidential Personnel, and in the Office of Presidential Personnel, there are 1.9 million people who work in the federal government, but about 4,000 of those individuals are individuals that each administration identifies and give jobs to or appointments to to serve during the tenure of that presidency. Those include cabinet members and ambassadors. Pretty close to 1,500 of those 4,000 jobs are part-time citizens who are asked to serve on committees or commissions or board to advise the government in various ways. And so to give you an example, the 9-11 Commission was appointed by the President of the United States, and he identified citizens to serve on that who could produce that final report. I worked in the office that was responsible for identifying those citizens and interviewing them and seeing them through their service. It's a, a very important job. Everybody wants to know you, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> at least everyone who wants to serve in, in the government and, and have a job wants to get to know you. But it's an important job, too, because many of these institutions require presidential appointments. And so I ended up taking over the entire office that was responsible for those 1,500 appointments, those 1,500 jobs, and placing people and building those teams to assure that those uh, various institutions had the right people serving them and being able to add value. I eventually became a special assistant to the president, and, and that's a special title that's given to you by the president, kind of denoting some level of rank within the White House. Part of the great pleasure that I enjoyed in that role was meeting so many men and women from all across the country who were interested in serving and who could add enormous value. And then having the opportunity to almost weekly go into the Oval Office with colleagues of mine and to make the case before the President of the United States as to why these individuals were the right individuals to be appointed to these various boards and commissions. There are a lot of people who work in the White House, but there are not that many people who get the opportunity of engaging on a regular basis with the President of the United States. And so with that comes an enormous sense of 
pride and elation, but also an enormous sense of responsibility, enormous sense of preparation, an enormous sense of thoughtfulness, and having guiding principles to make sure that when you go in that you're making not only good recommendations, but transformative recommendations for the good of those entities. How did the Madison Park community prepare you for life in the White House? If anything, Madison Park taught me how to be interested in people and how to realize and appreciate that every person, no matter how different they are, no matter how different their temperaments or their talents or their convictions are, that they are interesting and that they have a story and that they could add value. And those responsibilities in the White House required me to constantly build teams and to think about how people could work together on those teams to accomplish those organizational objectives. Everything that I've ever done is about people. It's about relationships. It's about building teams. For me, Madison Park taught me a lot about community. To a large degree, most of what I've done professionally has been about building communities or building teams and creating mosaic. If anything, Madison Park taught me to appreciate different types of people, and that was of enormous value. What role has the public library played in your life? My grandparents were not allowed to go into the Montgomery Public Library. And my mother growing up in the 60s was not allowed to go into the public library. When I came along, I could go to the Montgomery Public Library. My grandfather would drive me to the Montgomery Public Library but he would never go in. I don't think that he could ever emotionally and psychologically enter into a space that he had been denied. He would drive me to the public library, and he would park, and he would sit out in the car often, and he would wait three, four hours. My going into the library was like my going into a different universe. It was so unlike anything that I had ever experienced. And at an early age, I came to fall in love with books and ideas, in part because of Aunt Shine building me that small library and my grandfather building a shelf all around my entire room all four walls having this wraparound shelf where all those books were kept. So when I would walk into the Montgomery Public Library, it was like a mecca. And all the librarians knew me as the Motley Boy. And so they were always so generous. And only now do I I think about all the books they had to reshelve. I found myself sitting at my table. There was a white gentleman in a wheelchair. And at his side was a, a black man who was serving as a valet or an attendant. I was so intrigued. And I would look up and I would catch him looking at me, and then he would drop his gaze, and and then I would look down, and I would turn, and I would find him looking at me, and this went on over the course of maybe 30, 40 minutes, and as I was gathering my books up at the end of the day, knowing that it was time for me to go down to my grandfather's car, that man looked at me, and he nodded his head as if acknowledging something, and I, in response, nodded my head, I went to the car, and I said to my grandfather, you would never guess who I just met in the library. And my grandfather, not one for games, said, tell me who. And and I said, I'll give you several guesses. And and he said, no, no, just tell me who. And it was, you know, my coming face-to-face with Governor George Wallace. And perhaps he saw in me nameless black boy lost in wonder at the library, kind of the embodiment of a time that was no more. Maybe he thought of me as the future's promise. Maybe he was pondering... What the poet John Greenleaf Whittier once wrote, of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these, it might have been, 
But it was one of those moments of reckoning that I will always, always remember. And whenever I go back to Montgomery, I stop by that Montgomery Public Library to remind myself of all the promise <laughs> that it inspired within me at a very early age. Eric, it's been an honor speaking with you. The book is called Madison Park, A Place of Hope, and it's out November 14th. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you.